There are decades where nothing happens, and there are weeks where decades happen. This quote, being attributed to Lenin, could easily be observed from recent events surrounding the world. Seems like we're entering a new epoch of geopolitical rivalry. Obviously, the Russian-Ukrainian war is a proxy or between the United States and the rising powers of Russia and China. Um, but there's also more interesting rumblings happening within the Western world itself. So you see uh, nationalist parties and Europeans themselves, or like even in America, etc., or just in Brazil, taking more assertive role against the scourge of the communist threat. And, uh, for instance, there's a high possibility that the Article 141 of the Constitution of Brazil is going to be invoked by President Jair Bolsonaro to interfere with the government because of the obvious election fraud and theft and uh, ultimately reassert control. Well, let's hope, my legionaries, this happens. Um, Brazil, as opposed to the United States, has had a longer tradition of autocratic rule than the United States has had. Um, I mean, since its inception, it was all, first of all, it wasn't a colony, it was a captaincy, so it was already a military organization until finally it became, you know, the colony of, uh, you know, the Portuguese Empire, and later, after the Napoleonic War, gained its independence as the Empire of Brazil, which lasted until relatively very late. Uh, funny enough, backstory to Brazil is that um, their slavery didn't end until about 1889. And there was no war, no civil war, no cucks, and just in the, you know, sweep of one pen, it was gone. It's kind of funny, isn't it? Uh, that you can solve those things without trying to play white savior. But in any case, um, the operations in the Ukraine, as we see now, for instance, the evacuation of Kherson by Russian forces and the occupation of the Ukrainian of the uh, Kherson region, um, obviously spells that for most, the Russian military is on the defensive. But this has been true for the last few months. Um, ever since the Ukrainians launched a successful counterattack and the withdrawal from the Kiev um, and northeastern attack points. Now, this is no surprise. I think that uh, 
given the terrible state of the Russian military, I think, objectively speaking, they're probably making the best call because rivers are f far better to defend than um, open terrain, which is where Kherson was, which if you have to imagine, Ukraine is divided straight in half by the Dnieper River, which is a huge river. And uh, on the left side of that river, the western side of that river, is where Kherson is. And so what the Russian generals decided is to withdraw, um, reappropriate, you know, the best units that were being used to fight in that region to go to the Donbass sec the section uh, called the VDV, which is the paratroopers as part of their elite formations. Um, and this way they were able to use you know, lower quality troops to do just just garrison duty, defensive duties, which are very simple to do when you're like on a river, which is very difficult to attack. Just imagine it as a massive moat of a kind. So that's interesting. Um, the armed forces of Ukraine have actually mobilized six combat brigades, which they had trained up in the United Kingdom and sent to the Donbass front as well. Uh, it seems that the Russians have gotten some uh, intel which indicates an attack in that direction. Recently, the siege of Bakhmut and some other minor cities in that region uh, has indicated that the Russians are trying to take the advantage. However, mostly is a stalemate. You have to remember now that winter is setting in, the snows are coming down, you know, temperatures get frigidly cold during this season, and so this is relatively where most military operations run into a snafu or they pause for the campaign season. But it seems as though, apparently, from um, different like open source intel intelligence that I've gathered, um, that there are significant brigades of armored brigades being mechanized, motorized, everything. Tanks, for instance, being painted in white, um, being trained. Apparently they've mobilized the brand new T-14 Armadas, uh, which is their brand new chassis tank system. So it seems like they're going balls in and the stories of you know partial mobilization also might be um, misleading. It seems as though there is something close to a million and a half men being trained in reserve corps in the back uh, for an offensive operation and I have seen some videos and some uh, conversations with individuals who have said that Belarusians are actually mobilizing themselves or maybe they'll just send like a volunteer battalion or something but it's very interesting to see what the impending attack will be however this has gotten me thinking what went so wrong during the initial attack what went so wrong in the beginning and I've covered this before but I think the most egregious event or move I thought was the most ridiculous to have been done by the Russian military was the uh, air assault on the Kiev airport. Now, I'm not going to get into it too in-depth, but I just wanted to give you a, like a, a background really quick. Um, you have to remember that air assaults effectively are always done in the context where you have overwhelming air superiority, period. Two you have 
basically a military that is below peer adversary or near peer capabilities. The Russians and the Ukrainians are pretty much at a peer adversary uh, situation as the thing stands. So, like, you know, with the troops on the front right now as we speak, um, with the mobilized men who are fighting, not counting the reserve corps that is allegedly being trained up, um, it seems as though that the ratio uh, favors the Russians only three to two. I mean, the, the Ukrainians are getting massive munitions and ordnance and um, equipment and uh, everything kind of military lend-lease program, like shipping tons of, of anything that they need, medical supplies, you know, obviously you have to remember that NATO is also in Kiev, they're organizing, they're basically commanding the Ukrainian forces on their own, uh, you know, dime, if you, you know what I'm saying, they're bankrolling the whole operation, sending money, equipment, medical stuff, obviously it's probably a uh, poorly kept secret that there are probably SEALs and Green Berets who are operating in the United, uh, in Ukraine, teaching Ukrainian soldiers how to fight, or even taking part in raids themselves, etc. I mean, this is just what happens in general in war. I hope you're not naive, and don't think that doesn't happen, because that's really retarded. But, um, let's see here. Oh, and I just want to go back to the air assault. So, you know, the issue with the air assault is like, okay, yes, it is effective. It is effective against a weaker force. It is effective when you have massive air superiority. However, it's not effective in the circumstance that the Ukraine found itself in, especially because the air assault was invented during the 50s and 60s where there wasn't such a thing as, you know, manpads, which man portable, you know, guided missiles to um, serve as, you know, AA. Because those things are super effective. I hope you understand that the reason why the Soviets lost in Afghanistan was because the United States actually supplied them with obviously munitions and rifles, but the most effective thing that they su uh, supplied them with were stingers. Stingers were massively important to eliminating the air superiority um, that the Soviet Air Force and Armed Forces were had exerted over the um, the Taliban, or I guess at that time was the Mujahideen. But in any case, I get I get carried away with myself. Um, I'm glad to have been talking to you guys, but I think the best way to elucidate where a circumstance of a vertical envelopment would be merited would be to revisit the Vietnam War and the experiences of the first major divisional sized air assault in the Pleiku I can't even pronounce these freaking zip names it's uh, Pleiku District and so ultimately what happened is we're gonna go back in some future time I'm gonna go talk about this however uh, you have to remember that my criticism of the Russian High Command from purely a war, art of war perspective has to do with the fact that I think they're too sanguine. They think that 
I think that's what happens is like these Russians are boomers and boomers still live during their prime and the prime of the generals that are in the high command still believe that Ukrainians are part of this greater Soviet Union and that they're all friends and buddies and and they love each other and they don't realize that like over the last let's see 30 years that the internet and American psyops have been using the Ukraine as a black site etc but also um, you know, slowly causing societal drift through soft power, you know, through psyops, etc., you know, spreading gay shit, spreading, you know, the, the classic MO of undermining a sphere of influence to turn it against Russia. And so what ended up happening is the following. So now... I mean, the Russians know, even from the Soviet Union, that, like, you can't fight a near-peer adversary, or even one that has man-pads, with, uh, you know, air assaults, and somehow it just kind of went over their head. But in any case, we're going to go back, we're going to talk about the, you know, first divisional strength assault, we're going to talk about the leaders of that battle, we're going to talk about the tactics, and ultimately I will show, even back then, even back then, how, how do you say, how high risk it was. At the time, it probably made operational sense to op you know, operate with these uh, vertical envelopment troops, air mobile, especially in Vietnam, especially with the terrain and the enemy not being as capable. But, anyway, I don't want to get ahead of myself, legionaries. I'm here on the battlefield sipping on some martinis, hanging out with uh, Sergeant Barnes. In any case, we're going to kick back, relax, and when we get back, we're going to talk about the Battle of La Drang. Welcome to Lance's Legion.
and we're back. I hope y'all enjoyed that. But uh, let's recenter here. Let's go back roughly 50 years. Oh, 60 years now, I think. Set in the jungles of the highlands of Vietnam. Here is uh, during the event. You have to understand that the Vietnam War, prior to this event, hadn't seen significant American intervention. And this was the first conflict in which American regular forces with straight-up divisions, you know, all the kind of accoutrement of war were present in South Vietnam fighting. And so here's the deal. Uh, they arrive, they gather the situation, before the Americans arrived, the South Vietnamese Army, which is the ARVN, the Army of the Republic of Vietnam, were roughly suffering casualties of about a battalion of men a day. And obviously, that is not a, how do you say, sustainable casualty ratio. And ultimately, uh, you, you have to remember that the NVA had the Viet Minh, um, they had the support of the Chinese and the Soviets. They had also military experience. They were motivated soldiers. They were individuals who hailed from the uh, Viet Minh who fought during the Second World War and the preceding French Indochina War. And ultimately, they're the nationalist faction which is hard to explain to many people nowadays because obviously they're communists and obviously they're ideological communists and Ho Chi Minh was most certainly you know a, a very uh, adept communist if that makes sense he showed up in Paris the international um, you know he, he he was well connected but you have to remember that there was this nationalist uh, angle to a lot of these popular quote-unquote revolutions, when really they're just um, a slave insurrection, right? You have to remember when the French withdrew from pressure from the United States, obviously, to decolonize um, Indochina, what ended up happening is that the Vietnamese had historically this thing called the Emperor of Vietnam, and he was deposed by the United States in favor of a, a military junta which was ostensibly a republic and uh, you know it, it was like an oligarchy it was it was rapacious it was it was really evil in a, a lot of ways and it kind of undercut its public support amongst the citizens who were not communists in South Vietnam who were right-wing etc and ultimately it devolved into the situation in which the countryside and many small but significant towns were in the grip of the Viet Cong, which is the popular resistance. So these guys are irregular troops that are ideological communists fighting the um, Republic of Vietnam's uh, forces. And ultimately, America has decided under the strategic interest of containment um, that if Vietnam falls, Thailand would fall, and so would all of Southeast Asia. And so, ultimately, they deploy. They deploy with a force of not just the Americans, but also allies, Australians, New Zealanders, British, Koreans, etc., veterans of the Korean War. And uh, the first and most important operation that was going to happen 
was to negate the Ho Chi Minh Trail. The Ho Chi Minh Trail, you have to remember, if you look at a map, I'll supply it here at the bottom. Um, it, Vietnam is this long, kind of, it looks like a, honestly like a, like a shit, like a very slender shit, right? And running south of the DMZ zone, there is, adjacent to the Vietnamese border in Laotia, excuse me, or Laos, and Cambodia, this thing called the Ho Chi Minh Trail. Along this trail is where logistics of munitions, food, medication, uh, reinforcements were smuggled from border to border into the uh, Vietnamese Mekong Delta, and ultimately were the reason why they could prop up the irregular forces of the VC. So, the first objective by General Westmoreland, who was in command of the overall Vietnamese effort, was to crush the backbone of this uh, logistical supply chain. Ultimately, the Pleiku region or province is a inland province within uh, Vietnam. You should Google it. And it is sharing the border with Cambodia. It was a major NVA presence. It was impenetrable mountain and jungle. So if you weren't a native, if you weren't, you know, Vietnamese, and this is what the French ran into as problems as well, is like it was extremely difficult to navigate the terrain themselves. It was extremely difficult to reach, um, you know, the enemy who was hiding out in tunnels in the ground, like ants or, or termites with uh, turning massive mountains into molehills of, of all kinds of crazy things. I mean, you have to understand, uh, at Dien Bien Phu, 1956, the French, in all their martial genius, decided to go into a mountain valley and draw the Vietnamese into a trap in northern Vietnam and they thought they wouldn't be able to move their heavy artillery pieces and their massive like support network etc but just like a colony of ants of ants excuse me what they did is they took apart these massive howitzers soviet made and chinese made howitzers and you should see it it's crazy there's like films like black and white films of of trains and trains of you know uh... nva soldiers or i guess at that point it was vietnamese soldiers um, sharing a bamboo sling, and on it are different components of artillery, or you see little medical crates, or you see this or that. I mean, the endurance of Vietnamese in this, like, war, and the following wars, is incredible. And they're, like, you know, you can't take it away from them. Their, their commitment to duty, discipline, and, uh, you know, their ideolo ideological conviction and will to be independent is really like impressive. Uh, you have to read certain memoirs by the Vietnamese themselves. I, I think it's actually kind of impressive to read. Uh, which leads me to another thing. Just because someone is your enemy, does or adversary rather, does not mean necessarily that they're like a mortal enemy. The, the Romans had two distinctions, right, for individuals who are enemies. You know, Hostilis and Amicus. Animicus. Animicus is like a personal enemy, and Hostilis is just somebody you're hostile to, someone that you're an adversary of, you know. Sometimes buddies go to war, man. It's just ha shit happens. But, like, you have to understand in this context, you know, like, there's a lot of respect I have for, like, the Viet Minh, as I do have respect for the Afghans. 
um, very like especially because the Viet Minh don't have a strong martial culture. Um, their past is not like the, with the exception of the Japanese, the Mongolians, and the Tibetans, they don't really have a strong history of military. Uh, I guess military tradition. And I don't know why that is, I'm just making that observation, but for whatever reason, the Vietnamese became a powerhouse. They turned into a totally Spartan, militarized society, which I guess is the one upside of like the Stalinist communism that they were espousing in northern Vietnam, was this idea of like everyone's a soldier. There's like no fucking bullshit. Anyway, I get back, so you have to understand the terrain is like this. It's set in a deep jungle, heavy mist, heavy rain, mountaintops, you know, uh, American presence isn't very strong, nor is the local ARVN force very strong or presence there. The countryside is completely Viet Cong controlled, and even citizens who are either neutral or against the Viet Cong have to actively aid the Viet Cong and NVA forces who are stationed there um, because of how strongly they made their authority felt. You know, there were like significant tribunals and courts by communists who um, ultimately were capable of policing the population, coercing them to their will. Any case, so we go back and um, around this time, the there was intelligence that the 32nd, the 33rd, and the 66th Regiment of the Southern Front for the NVA, which is the, the Vietnamese forces. Remind you, NVA stands for Northern Vietnamese Army, okay? Or North Vietnamese Army. So these are the enemy, right? And so ultimately what happened is, um, you know, what they're trying to do is consolidate their control, secure um, the passage for the Ho Chi Minh Trail from the perspective of the NVA, and um, this needed to be stopped. They, they needed to be eliminated. And so there were, even before the 7th Cav and, and the main line of the regular troops of the American troops were sent, um, there were preliminary... Um, how do you say, reconnaissance missions, like long, deep operational reconnaissance missions to suss out the locations of um, these NVA troops um, and to just try to, I guess, what's it's called? Uh, there's the four Fs, right? It's uh, find, fix, fight, finish, right? Flank, finish. And so what they were trying to do is just find them, especially in that deep mountains, difficult. And the... Uh, so you have to remember, again... The American doctrine, and by default the ARVN's doctrine of artillery support, hinged on this thing called um, it's called fire bases, forward fire bases. And what what's a forward fire base? Basically, um, in Vietnam, what that meant it, it's like a, a howitzer battery, one one five five or one o five, not heavy howitzers. They would be deployed. Uh, you know, a infantry battalion would take control of a mountaintop, because there were many, um, and ultimately, you know, cut down trees, form an LZ, fortify the top of that mountain, uh, set up a perimeter, and ultimately have a, um, you know, artillery battery in place at that position. This way, when infantry companies or commands went out and patrolled into the mountain valley, and uh, ultimately were seeking the enemy, 
searching for Charlie, right, uh, which is the common term, they would have fire support. Because the doctrine of America isn't, it's not to necessarily fight man-to-man and, and win in the battle, or, and it's not even maneuver warfare. America is really not about maneuver warfare, even though William S. Lind is correct and the Marine Corps kind of espouses that strongly. You have to remember that the regular army and the army of that time primarily focused on overwhelming firepower. And even in small unit combat, for instance, uh, there's this uh, term called fire superiority. So let's say you're under an ambush, or you fight, or you ambush someone. The first thing you do is achieve fire superiority. What does this mean? It means basically when you fire upon the enemy, you pin him down. When you pin him down, he is suppressed. Right, so if, if there's accurate fire, like there's bullets coming at me, and if I lift my head above cover, I'll get shot. That is accurate fire. That is um, strong suppression, uh, you know, uh, accurate suppression. And ultimately, the idea of the infantry tactic, for from the perspective of a regular force of the United States, is to fix the enemy. So suppress them, keep them pinned down. They can't move, they can't retreat, they can't go forward, they can't fire back. And um, then what they do is they call in artillery. In modern day, what you do is call in a JDAM. You, that's why, like for instance, if you see an Afghan or Iraq, uh, you see all these videos of JDAM strikes. It's because what it would happen is these patrols, these infantry patrols would receive fire from Taliban. And ultimately what the Americans would do is they would obviously attack. Um, but they wouldn't go in and finish the enemy man-to-man, right? What they would do is hold the enemy in place by pinning them and then squashing that bug with a JDAM. And that's why you see all those videos. But in Vietnam, it was a different story. In Vietnam, there wasn't, um, well, at least it wasn't, uh, there was still prototyping. Like, General Dynamics was researching this thing called, um, you know, precision munitions, and you're seeing this now with in the Ukraine, etc., of the effectiveness of precision munitions. But back then, it was still a concept. It was being developed. It was top secret. So you had dummy rounds. Um, you, you only had, you know, that, that's why Vietnam s- expended ten times the ordnance of uh, bombs. Uh, the Vietnam War than the entirety of uh, World War II, which is incredible. It's an incredible kind of thing to state because the war in Vietnam only claimed, like, comparatively, uh, I think it was like 2 million uh, individuals, whereas the, you know, the Second World War claimed roughly upwards of 60 million people. That's a significant inefficiency ratio. But that's just to give you an observation of how American doctrine hinged on explosive firepower, fire superiority. And so what you'd end up doing is engage the enemy by fires, destroy the enemy by fires, right? And um, so it hinged on this strategy of first establishing fire bases and from there patrolling into the valley. Once you patrol into the valley and significantly reduce the enemy presence by continuous patrolling, continuous reinforcement, continuous um, engagement and killing the enemy, that over time the numbers of the enemy would dwindle and the military units operating in that area would either be completely eliminated or they would be rendered militarily uh, combat ineffective. Combat ineffective indicates that their strength is so low that ultimately 
engaging them in combat would lead to uh, fewer returns than it would be to, you know, retreat, you know, reinforce, re-engage at some future time. And that was the major strategy of the Pleiku campaign. I hope I don't go too far into this, and sometimes I find myself in rabbit holes, and I know a lot of you are veterans, um, but for those of us who don't know these things, who are learning it for the first time, there's a reason why I'm mentioning all these specific um, terms and terminology and backgrounds, just so that way it gives context and it gives people something to study. In any case, and this is where operations start, right? So they did a sweep and then ultimately created fire bases at one particular fire base. Um, these three regiments, which is, by the way, like roughly a, what, what, I guess it's a divisional size force, so it's like 10,000 men, roughly, engaged a unit, a battalion, which is roughly around 365, 395, it's reinforced, and they were under siege by overwhelming numbers with a well-supplied, well-motivated force of NVA. And so that's when the context of the Battle of Ledrang comes in. And uh, here we go. So the 1st Cavalry Division, by the way, it's Cavalry with a V, not Calvary. So Calvary is a church thing. Cavalry is men on horses back then. Now it's men on, on armored horses, whether they fly or they're mechanized, etc. Okay, so um, here, here's the idea. So th these fire bases were engaged. Reinforcements um, from the northern and I think it was the ARVN battalion from the adjacent province had been infiltrating into that valley to give support and relieve the forces under the besieged hillside top fortress, and uh, effectively ran into resistance from the 33rd Regiment of NVA, um, and they were mauled severely and uh, they, they got completely schwacked and it was truly impressive um, there are a lot of comments from the American General Staff how much fight there was in the NVA how much they could put up with you know they could survive for months in the jungle with just you know a, a small tiny sack of rice just rice just starch and a rifle on their back and the balls in their fucking you know pants and anyway uh, I get you know aside from myself here but in any case, so the idea is, every time you attack these forces, like, what was the first instinct was to send a whole bunch of leg infantry um, to establish a combat front line and push the 33rd and the rest of these NVA forces back, right? However, the issue is that these guys would just melt. They'd melt into Cambodia and escape into Laos, and you can't, I mean, even though the Pentagon did bomb Cambodia and Laos, it wasn't legal and so they couldn't pursue you know enemy forces into adjacent terrain so what needed to happen was an envelopment and ultimately this is where the first cavalry division comes in uh, there's an operation which inserts them behind this emplacement uh, which these NVA forces are fighting again this hillside top and this is also where we're set uh, with different LZs. In the middle of the jungle, it's very difficult to find landing zones. Landing zones are just like clearings that are suitable for helicopter drop-in insertions. And ultimately, 
one of these LZs, uh, let's see here. Yes. Ah, uh, yes. LZ X-Ray. There's a whole bunch of code names and different mission sets for different battalions. And here we find the story of We Were Soldiers. So the commander of We Were Soldiers, like the guy in We Were Soldiers played by Mel Gibson, was the actual guy. His name was Hal Moore. And he was the commander of 1-7. So 1st Cavalry Division, 7th Cav Regiment, right? And that is the regiment of, you guessed it, Custer. Yep. And so, you know, Custer's regiment, when a unit is completely annihilated like that, ignominiously, especially after Little Bighorn, it's it, it's often that they're not reconstituted because there's a lot of bad memories. How do you say? The superstition alone affects morale. From a completely scientific perspective, it affects morale, like the self-perception of what you're going into. If you're going into a battalion whose history is about getting annihilated at the Battle of Little Bighorn, you're not going to be as confident. You know, and so ultimately, this is the situation they find themselves into. And um, oh, and another thing too, the army of this time, even though the cavalry division was made up of complete regular soldiers, the line infantry was made up of draftees, and so ultimately, these draftees. They were not as motivated, they're not as professional as professional units like we know now. Anyway, let's get back here. So, this is the Battle of La Drang at LZ X-Ray. And uh, Custer's 7th Cavalry um, basically rose again, riding on steel horses from the sky, inserting into deep enemy territory in the jungle, in the misty mountains of Vietnam. I think there's nothing more aesthetic than that idea of going into the unknown. And Vietnam is truly that infantryman's, uh, I don't know, it's an infantryman's war. Like, because everywhere else, if you go to Afghanistan or Iraq, the terrain does not lend itself to infantry tactics. You fall victim to either armored or air superiority because you're just so exposed. But when you're in the jungle and you're going deep behind enemy lines, um, you know, you don't know the terrain. Also, you have to remember the Viet Cong. They have underground forces. Like, they literally burrowed underground with massive complexes that you can't hit from the sky. Like, no matter how many times you bomb it with a B-52 with a huge payload, these things don't cave in, right? It's just massive mounds of clay. And so, you needed to do that man-to-man, -man, you know, like, just survive on the wit of platoon against platoon, battalion against battalion, regiment against regiment. And this is what we find today. And so, again, commanded by Lieutenant Colonel Howmore, he went to, just to give you a background, he went to West Point, he fought in Korea, he was an infantryman by, by trade, um, then he was attached to mortars, and ultimately, uh, you know, he was always a great leader, but he was not ex exceptionally bright. There's this conceit in the military that I found amongst officers that unless you're very intelligent, unless you're very intelligent that, like, you're not a good officer. I think that's the opposite. I think in the military, obviously, the intellect plays a part. However, it has more to do with your willpower, your character, 
your charisma. It's a full spectrum appraisal of your skills. And how Moore was an he was an extraordinary man, extraordinary soldier, extraordinary officer, leader of men, and uh, you know he started showing this when he was a kid. You know he was in the Boy Scouts, devoted to his country, which is actually really hard to see in modern America. There isn't a devotion to country per se. They're ideological people, however, they're not loyal to America. But this guy was like a good old boy American. He's from the South. I think he was from North Carolina. And so, any case, we go back here and we see this. We see <sighs> Helmore is a avid student of military history. This is part of the reason why I do these podcasts and why I publish those books and I talk to you about these stories and relay campaigns and experiences, etc. is because how do you say this? Military education isn't science. It's not figuring out equations. It's not... Fuck, dude. It's not fucking physics, if that makes sense. It's not an exact science. What it is, is the accumulation of experience by others in real time. And, and, and there's a cognitive process to this. So one is... You know, it's inductive reasoning. It's 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 different. You have to have a finesse for it because real life, um, it's so variable, and the very variety of combat um, also just adds to that. And so, little things of experiences from previous rears are archetypically true and generally good rules of thumb. So before. Moore was deployed um, to Vietnam. There were actually a lot of scholarly reports uh, which were being written at that time, specifically people that had actually been there, journalists who had been there during the French uh, Indochina War, who documented this book called A Street Without Joy. And that is the, I'm going to link it in the context below, but Street Without Joy is the preeminent counterinsurgency experience you have to read and the experience of Vietnam and the guy that wrote that book would go on to tag along and follow the experiences of American troops and ARVN troops in suppressing and rooting out the Viet Cong and um, you know Helmore takes the opportunity he reads these reports he also reads about the combat um reports from the French um, and their experiences in Indochina. He knows about Dien Bien Phu. He knows his trade. He knows his job. Um, he's well informed. And so I think that's another aspect of a military leader. You need to be well informed, constantly reading, constantly getting background. And even before he goes there, he realizes that he is, how do you say, fighting a losing battle just from everything that he says. But he's well-educated. He knows the tactics of the NVA, the tried-and-true tactics. These guys are hardened veterans, and uh, they just explain all that kind of stuff later. But... Okay. Anyway, gentlemen, let's get in the meat potatoes here. This is a three-day battle. Behind enemy lines, in the jungle, as I said many times. And uh, I think... 
Maybe how Moore knew what he was stepping into. But the average man did not. And uh, I guess the best way to look at it is that Moore was fatalistic and knew his duty to his children, to his patient, you know, to God, country, his family. Any case, here's the progress of that battle. They insert Alpha, Bravo, Charlie, Delta Company, and ultimately form a 360 perimeter around the landing that they had chosen. So LZ X-ray has been successfully, um, how do you say, taken, right? People are still digging in. As soon as they set a 360 perimeter with a battalion headquarters in the center, with the mortar section in the center, what they end up doing is uh, doing combat patrols. Combat patrols are obviously trying to meet the enemy. His mission is to find the 33rd and annihilate it, right? Or at least the element of the 33rd that was suspected to have been there. Um, he sends out, as soon as he gets there, uh, they find scouts all over the place and they apprehend a few of them however uh, this bad thing happened which is lieutenant herrick's platoon finds an nba scout and he's that scout is running up this mountain far away from the lz and he you know lieutenant herrick who is known prior to that to have been a little bit overzealous um to a little bit headstrong too aggressive and confident ended up leading his entire platoon to catch one man um, you know and what ended up happening was he ran them into a enemy, enemy position and his platoon was cut to pieces and on ultimately pinned down and what ended up happening was that the rest of the battalion could not lend support because they had it overextended past their line of support and like you know countervailing fires etc or vision which is, by the way, something called good initiative, bad judgment. Um, anyway, so any attempts of trying to, uh, you know, arrive with this second platoon of, of Bravo Company, Lieutenant Herrick's platoon, were thwarted. The action was immediately strong. Attacks were happening, you know, strong freaking uh, mortars from the NVAs, um, artillery artillery batteries um, they're also you know sending rushing troops buttressed by local numbers of Viet Cong and it slowly filters down to the commander that they just stepped into a massive pile of shit it's not just an entire regiment it was two regiments that had actually been in that location who had already been exfiltrating to Cambodia and it, intelligence apparently hadn't picked this up. And so what ended up happening uh, was a battle ensued. The entire battalion was heavily fought, you know, pinned down. Lieutenant Herrick's platoon was cut to pieces, suffered roughly immediately like 50% casualty rates, um, but they managed to hold out. And through the night, there is charge and charge again of men coming wave after wave in uh, like unstoppable waves and uh, the way the NVA used to attack or announce a, an attack is they would blow a whistle or they blow, blow bugles and so that kind of resounded through the night and you know continuous fire support 
like, again, from these fire bases that had been pre-established before this insertion, were the only thing shielding um, the Seventh Cavalry from any successful attacks. And by this time, Hal Moore has been transmitting back to command, explaining the situation, explaining that they are possibly overwhelmed, and they ultimately decide, command ultimately decides to send the men that had arrived from the second um, cavalry, you know, the, you know, so there's one seven and there's the second cavalry regiment to go from their near landing zone 3.4 clicks away and try to infiltrate through the freaking forest and lend aid to Colonel Moore's battalion. So the second day arrives and things calm down. There are significant combat in the night. There's a lot of wounds. Um, however, there are many more enemy dead, enemy wounded. Um, and ultimately, Bravo Company attempts to send out a another reconnaissance patrol to try and link up with whatever was left of that platoon of Lieutenant Herrick and again finds enemies and the enemy renews their attack this time along three coordinated fronts three-pronged attack and almost overwhelmed them and because the Vietnamese had grown wise to the effective artillery shield that had guarded the rest of the battalion they realized that the only way to defeat the Americans would be to quote-unquote grab them by their belt buckle and so what ended up happening was that they were attempting to overrun just by pure force by sheer numbers the main objective and they were running all over the perimeter I mean for instance there was a bayonet charge that went through the lines and almost killed Halmore himself and he had to be using rifles all the time while coordinating radios while shouting encouragement while giving directions to company leaders etc and so ultimately the attack by the NVA reaches a crescendo even before 2-5. Like I said, this adjacent battalion that was had landed at LZ Victor, again, 3.5 clicks away, um, it was just too, uh, too intense, and they hadn't even arrived yet. And so Halmore calls in Broken Arrow and calls in all the fire support, aerial fire support, close air support they could possibly get. And actually, fun fact, this is the first battle that a B-52 Super Fortress was used in a close air support role. Um, prior to that, it didn't have that capability, but it was being developed for that situation. For people who don't know what that kind of looks like, if you Google like C-130 um, close air support, you'll see what it looks like. It looks like a massive uh, plane with a huge gun sticking on the side of it, giving accurate fire to the ground. Ultimately, they call in this fire support, they achieve a stasis of battle, they maintain the defensive, they maintain the perimeter, um, helicopters are going down, I think there was one helicopter shot down during this period where they're exfiltrating wounded, getting reinforcements, getting munitions, etc. And uh, during this crescendo, the Americans, because this was the first major engagement, the Americans, especially from the Pentagon, didn't want a high-level officer being killed or wounded or taken prisoner because they thought that, you know, the 7th Cavalry would be, how do you say, overrun.
and destroyed. Which was almost likely had it not been for Hal Moore's leadership. And Hal Moore refused. He refused to be leave his men behind. He fought there to the last. And ultimately, what ends up happening is 2-5 links up with 1-7. They change the ratio from roughly a parity of 2-2 two to, two to an advantage of 2-3. to three, And they counterattack. Around this time, the battle has like subsided significantly, and the NVA are on the defensive. The counterattack the next day, early that morning, 05 in the morning, with these two battalions, they rushed the mountain where the HQ was, and ultimately broke all resistance. I mean, there's like you, you should see in the the uh, movie We Were Soldiers how incredible like this counterattack was and like I said even though they had all this close air support etc it wasn't accurate and it wasn't it's not like today where you could put a rocket up someone's ass 5,000 miles away okay it was like it, you know you probably shell shock the enemy but there were a lot of wasted munitions that happened um, and finally they kind of rescued the day they counterattack destroy the enemy as I say and what ends up happening is that they accomplish their objective. They render the 33rd and the 32nd and elements of the 66th NVA regiments who had been harassing and taking control of the pay, uh, whatever the fucking, what's it goddamn called? Goddamn it, sorry, Marnes. Not drunk enough for this. Pleiku, the Pleiku province, had been eliminated or been bled so dry that they had to be completely retrained in northern Vietnam. Having killed so many enemy, they had to take a casualty kill ratio. So, in Vietnam, how do you say this? So, the strategy of the United States for counterintelligence, or excuse me, counterinsurgency, hinged on a war of attrition. And so, McNamara, who was a total bureaucrat, a total statistician, uh, hinged military success or defeat on the basis of kill ratio. And so, every time in Vietnam when there was a firefight, it was required by company and platoon leaders to do a head count of all enemy and obviously all casualties, and ultimately get a kill ratio. The kill ratio for this specific battle was 10 to 1. So for every United States soldier dead, there's 10 NVA men dead. That's, that's crazy. On one level, you could say, for instance, that it's an impressive show of force of the American military. But then you'd have to con consider the con converse of that situation, of the enemy, from our eyes, um, that showed tremendous martial capacity and dedication to service and duty to die in such droves with, you know, you know, it, I think us Westerners, especially people that have never gone to war. You take for granted the emotional loss of your brothers in arms or your friends and the sudden impact of such a tragedy during these attacks can have such a sapping state on your morale, especially as the attacking force. Remember, 1-7 uh, was on the defensive, right? So effectively they're fighting for their fucking life and a cornered snake fights right and it's not very difficult to have strong morale when you have no choice however 
the NVA had the choice of disengaging. Uh, they did not need to attack. They did not need to push the aggressive stance they did, and yet they did anyway. So, I mean, I think that's extremely interesting. I think um, the Vietnamese, especially in this war on both sides, uh, showed tremendous prowess and martial ability. Um, I, I think that there were their adversaries, um, but obviously, um, you know, they're commies, so you know how I feel about that. But in any case, um, so let's just like step back, examine what happened, and um, as, as far as from a tactical decision level, um, just some pros and some cons, right? The pros being, of course, uh, the exemplary character of good leadership, how more instilled a certain level of competence, confidence uh, to individuals throughout the battle, encouraging um, soldiers, you know, showing determination, showing stoicism, because part of the commander's duties is not simply to be internally confident, internally um, solid, but also to exude that and to show to his men. In a way, he has to be an actor, and Stephen Pressfield kind of talks about this. It's called the diamond, which is your persona, if that makes sense. And um, some people think that's inauthentic. However, actors act, and they're considered, like the Romans considered them lower than prostitutes. Why? Because they weren't themselves. However, in this case, this is who he was precisely. This is who Hal Moore was. And so I think there's nothing wrong with um, focusing on the, how do you say, uh, the emphasis on a show, if that makes sense. You have to show confidence. You have to show determination. You have to show these things. And because when shit's going off, rounds going down range, and like, you know, artillery's coming in, and you're down in your foxhole and your buddy's dead, and your brain's all over your face, well, guess what? You need to look up when you're faltering to see someone that's solid, like a rock. So that's a positive. And um, I think that was in the after-action report. Now let's talk about a con. Now obviously, Lieutenant Herrick, who was the main linchpin and issue with the defensive, he compromised the entire defensive posture of the battalion because of his over exuberance to capture a scout and interrogate him instead of shooting him now if we examine what happened he roughly ran about uh, two football fields away from the AO AO being area of operations and uh, was outside the range of any supporting or adjacent unit now in that case it is extremely important that you realize this and he was being told by his NCO to retreat he did not and um, what is that that's a ca classic case of good initiative bad judgment right so what's initiative initiative is acting within the commander's intent to try and accomplish a mission without having to wait for daddy to come down and tell you what to do this was the major takeaway from World War I. Decentralized command 
always succeeds, and initiative is the principal element of decentralized command. Um, there's a reason why the French lost. It's not because just technical reasons such as like radio communications between Panzer units and armored units of the uh, Crusade, etc. But it's because of how the French high command commanded. It was the high generals that were using literally on a map in Paris. They, uh, they would like it was almost like a chessboard to them. It was a chess game, while Rommel and Guderian and the I guess the general staff at that time just showed the general plan to each of the combatant commanders, the intent, so what the intent is, like what they expect to do overall, and they leave up the details to the discretion of the local commanding units. So I'm not going to get into that too much, but I'm trying to explain to you that initiative is necessary, initiative is good, because what happens is you can make a decision really quick, however, it, the time it takes for you to get permission to get make a decision already that the instance of that decision query has already passed, and the what's called the OODA loop has already gone through multiple revolutions. And... Um, I don't want to go too far, but I don't even want I don't want to soil this this honorable man's name because I wanted to talk about his virtues as well. So good initiative, bad judgment. It was bad judgment for the reasons above, but I think what's important to say is that throughout the firefight, when he was trapped with his men, he showed courage, determination, uh, fighting spirit, fighting power, um, the willingness to give orders, not freeze up, that's really important, to constantly shout encouragement, shout directions to all your men, give them things to do while under fire, and unfortunately, he was shot and succumbed to his wounds. It is alleged that his last words were... Oh, sorry, I just like... It's a little bit, like, emotional, but I would say his last words were, I'm glad to die for my country. What a far cry from what most people nowadays say. You know, if you read All Quiet in the Western Front, or all the bullshit, hippy-dippy bullshit from Vietnam War, regardless of you know, what you might say is happening behind closed doors, who's manipulating who to do what, to die for whom, you have to realize that these guys are simple soldiers, and their simple virtue is to die for their nation, and not to have second guesses about it, you know, and, um, you know, this, what's the saying, the adage, mine is not to reason why, mine is to do or die, and I think that this guy showed tremendous courage, um, conviction, and duty to his nation, to his fatherland, patria, you know? Anyway, I just want to leave it there. I thought it was important to emphasize that. But, bring it full circle, as you can see through this trial and tribulation, how fucking crazy a military helicopter insurgents, you know, insertion was. So, air assault is an incredibly risky situation. Even airborne operations, for instance. Like, if you listen to my earlier episode, Hitler called off all airborne insertions 
after the Battle of Crete in Operation Mercury. Why? Because there were exorbitant, exorbitant casualties. And the paratroopers and air assault units, etc., they're usually the cream of your crop. Why would you waste that on strategic nullities, right? Which is what happened in Vietnam. All these good men died for what? For a defensive losing war? Anyway, I think it's time we've got to sit back, smoke some stogies, check the perimeter, and uh, we'll be right back. Sergeant Barnes, play that track.
so welcome back and uh, I think it's important because Halmore is such an important figure as far as in the United States Army and military as a whole um, he actually was the author of many books but um, his son also came together and put a lot of his uh, writing and um, journaling uh, together into coherent books as well however um, what I want to do is just run through quickly his leadership principles. It's a list. I'm not going to go too, into too much detail, but I wanted to read it to you. If you want to read more in depth, um, I already have a previous post or article written that I'm going to have the URL down at the bottom. Um, but let me just uh, go ahead and start saying with the principle number one. Three strikes and you're not out. So, what does that mean? Keep fighting, never give up, right? Two, there's always one more thing you can do to influence any situation in your favor. And after that, there's one more thing. So, what does that mean? Ultimately, it means that, like, you know, you can do whatever you need to do. Um, it's, there's never a case where there's nothing to do. There's, there's always something that you could do to help uh, achieve victory. Three, when nothing is wrong, there's nothing wrong, except there's nothing wrong. And that's when a leader has to be the most alert. I.e., when you're walking to ambush, everything seems really nice. When an attack is going really well, there's an ambush. 4. Before going into battle, or while you're in battle, or undertaking a thought project or competition, if you, the leader, think you might lose, then you have already lost. This is a mindset thing, so a lot of people go into it with fatal, fatal determinism or fatalism and they wonder why they lose, or they're life's biggest loser. No. If you believe you can win, and you have the determination to persevere through pain and succeed, you'll win. Likely. Or at least more likely than not. Principle number five. Be ready, so you don't have to get ready. A good leader will preposition as many assets and people as he can before an event or as a contingency in a case of a disaster. Thus, when the alert for or emergency inevitably comes, you'll be better prepared to respond to it. Self-explanatory. Principle number six. Don't complain to your boss. He wants solutions, not problems. Again, self-explanatory. Principle number seven. A leader should surround himself with persons who fit his requirements and standards, and then turn them loose to do their jobs. What he means to say is, delegate, give people the latitude to do their mission, stop fucking micromanaging people. That's not what leaders do. Leaders are supposed to supervise. At most, I guess in the course of a military battle, or if you're at work, what you're supposed to do at most is teach the individual, right? Teach a man how to fish. Don't catch the fish for him himself. He never learns that way. Once you're able to do that, the only time you might be lending a hand is when you're at the point of like um, you know friction so like the 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 most intense operations area and so that's when you might step up and start doing stuff okay here we go oh number eight leaders lead from the front managers lead from the rear again self-explanatory stop how do you say uh, do everything that you 
don't expect your subordinates to do more than you do yourself. Always fulfill and go above and beyond what you have as expectations to your followers. Number nine, when the battle is over, there must be plans for follow-on actions. So, okay, perfect. So remember the battle of freaking Ladrang happened? There was a counterattack? That's called a follow-on action. So ultimately, you don't want to be stuck in a position, a fortuitous situation where you have a successful attack and it has culminated into nothing. They've disappeared into the forest or something or there's some fight and you're left with your dick in your hand and ultimately you could have pressed home the advantage. Anyway, let's see here. Principle number 10. A leader must have clearly defined objectives. He must ensure these objectives are clearly understood by his subordinate leaders. Okay, I, I'm pretty sure you understand that. Principle 11. A leader should never tell an outfit that it's screwed up. Again, this is a mindset thing. If you constantly tell yourself you're a loser or tell others they're losers, they will continue being losers. Never tell them. It undermines morale. It undermines their dignity as soldiers, as warriors. Don't diminish them. Build them up. Whenever you have a criticism, by the way, always start with positive things they did and then, in a tactful way, mention things they could improve and use positive language. For instance, I said improve, not saying you fucked up. Principle number 12. If you seek to correct a subordinate's behavior, start by telling them what they did well. Oh, there you go and then tell them what they need to improve. So, boom. Like I said, it's almost like verbatim what I just said. Principle 13. A good leader trains his men to react to a changing environment. So, obviously battle's dynamic, but life is dynamic. Business is dynamic. The circumstances and conditions under which you're operating change. You have to adapt. 14. Don't overreact, and don't overreact to an overreaction. So, this is again stoicism. Um, also, if someone above or in the battle, heat of battle, people are yelling, screaming, crying, do not let it phase you. Um, do not like let it show. Just make keep calm because your calm is infectious. It keeps other people calm. Like I said before, principle 15: stand up for principles. Choose the harder right over the easier wrong. So. Don't be an opportunist when it comes down to values. I'm not going to go further down. Uh, well, these are all of his per, uh, personal principles of leadership. Um, there are books which you can read called How More on Leadership. And I think it's really important that you read it, especially if you're a military leader. It's certainly like the best way uh, you can apply yourself and improve yourself as a military leader. Um, but aside from that, um, he also penned a book called We Were Soldiers Once and Young. Again, this turned into a movie by Mel Gibson. However, there's a book that preceded it that has far more detail about the deployment, about uh, the circumstances of his training, his interactions with uh, his troops, which were left out of the film because it doesn't make decent cinematography. So I recommend you read both. I'll have both URLs below and we'll just kind of finish it off there. So just to conclude this whole transmission, uh, 
there's a reason why there's a good criticism to be had against the Russian general staff and why that individual who was responsible for that insertion was relieved of command. Um, you know, air assaults are extremely precarious. Remember, even the Americans, when this was the first innovation, there were no man pads, there was no precision guided munitions, you know, even then it was treacherous and dangerous. And uh, nowadays the environment has completely shifted. The campaign in Afghanistan in the 1980s, for instance, like I told you before, with the Taliban, should have hailed the end of all helicopter uh, insertions in contested airspace, or even, for instance, um, in low-intensity uh, counterinsurgency operations, which is what technically air assaults are meant for. Um, I would say, let's see, obviously the Ukraine-Russia situation is retarded because the Russians clearly do not have air superiority. Add another thing here. Okay. Leadership makes all the difference. I mean this from both angles. From both the Americans and the Vietnamese. In this combat situation, um, the moral fortitude of a unit and its character and culture ultimately hinges in the mannerisms and the way of the leader. Anyway, let's just keep on moving on here. Um, I have some logistical concerns to address before we end the transmission. Uh, the I have started a crowdfund. My mission is to do a combat correspondence mission in the Ukraine and get real news that's not propaganda from either side. Completely objective. Not some bullshit, oh, this is objective, but some fake journalistic shit. No, I want to see what's actually going on on the ground. I want to see the innovations militarily. Unfortunately, as you know, it's expensive. It's expensive to buy the equipment. Um, I need money for the plane ticket, for food, sustenance, for gifts, quote-unquote, to get to places that I need to get to, if that makes sense. Um, anyway, please be aware of that. If you are so generous, please contribute. Um, I, I would be very thankful. Me and Sergeant Barnes will make an appearance. Next, uh, I have some books being released with uh, my Ducks Publishing Company. Uh, I've been writing a book called Warlord, which should be an introductory book to warfare as a whole, as a starting point. I started it um, while I was still in the uh, service. I realized that a lot of officers and junior enlisted who are NCOs don't know much about the theory of war or war in general, and if they wanted to know about it, they didn't know where to look. And so I've compiled a number of different you know, disciplines and resources one can use as a starting point from which you can branch out into the different references and developments of war and theory itself. In addition, there's going to be a massive uh, reading list with a core curriculum, etc., that I think is far better than just the uh, Commandant's reading list in the Marine Corps or the Army, etc. Now, uh, I just released the Anabasis of Alexander, Campaigns of Alexander, um, 
obviously one of those uh, cornerstone uh, campaigners and conquerors of the world. Um, I get sick of reading translations from modern academia that try to make out certain uh, sexual dynamics between men as homosexual. Um, back then, you know, it, it's hard for the liberal slash woman mind to understand platonic fraternal love for each other. And, of course, they always try to make it a sexual dynamic because that's all they understand is sex. So, I've chosen a 1909 translation of this great, great, you know, Aryan book. And, um, you know, check it out. Buy it. Support me. All that, all the uh, funds go to making my trip to Ukraine happen. Next, just to give you an alert, um, if you buy any of the linked books, so every episode I'm going to be linking a book uh, that I use to read and reference for this material. Um, a lot of you end up buying it anyway. However, if you buy through specifically this URL, it forces uh, Zio freaking Amazon to kick back some big bucks my way. Uh, it help your boy out a lot. Um, I mean, it's just a few cents here and there, but it really does help in the long term. Next, transmission challenge. Um, so, every legionary, I expect you to have a surplus military-grade boots, pair of boots, uh, two pair, ideally. The reason being is because the weight of boots actually help you develop the leg muscles for hiking and etc. And packs. Now. <coughs> I'm going to link to a couple. You don't have to buy necessarily these ones itself, but just looking around, um, some people buy these like stupid hiking packs that look like you came from fucking some lib shit commercial where you're just like going for a nature walk or some shit. No, I'm going to give you a real goddamn pack that you can put 70 pounds in and do. Like it's called a route march. You need to be walking fast, at least three miles an hour, uh, 3.5. That's the minimum. Um, and basically, every weekend you should probably be doing a 12-mile route march. And um, in the future, I'll explain to you in the comments below. I'll explain the event, how to break it up: 45 minutes of marching, 15 minutes of break. This way, your body is not overexerted, especially if you're out of weight or out of shape, excuse me, or both, whatever. Next, Watch We Were Soldiers by Mel Gibson. It's one of the, I mean, if you don't want to read all the books, it's actually really nice to just watch the movie. Uh, I think it's pretty accurate as far as the the spirit of how things were presented. There's some lib shit stuff about, like, race or equality or some gay shit like that, but it's to be expected, um, which is historically a little bit inaccurate, but... Aside from that, I think it's a great, great movie. Mel Gibson's great, and he's not part of the pedo cabal. So let's see here. Oh, and let's see. Do a favor for an elderly neighbor. Making a difference in your country isn't always about glory and like gallantry and getting shot at and doing this crazy heroic stuff. It's sometimes excellence in the small things. There's a lot of older people. I personally dislike boomers. However... Um, I think it's important that um, we set the example. Our generation is the generation that changes things. The way we change things 
is by showing both our elders, our peers, and our subordinates, the people that are coming of age just now, the proper way to be a man, to be a leader, to be a patriot, and it doesn't matter what they did in their past or lacked of, lack thereof, we show the example. And it's not necessarily to benefit them. However, it's a way of propagating a culture of civic-mindedness and patriotism. If you have any further questions or guidance, check out the link tree, post a comment below. If you like, have any comments or concerns or questions about you know, the pack, the boots, the event, etc., all that will be, how do you say, addressed at the end. Um, again, there will be many more episodes to come. I finally, me and Sergeant Barnes here have finally gotten some time on R&R to compile our notes for new and better episodes. It is my aim with every sequential episode to make it more entertaining, better, uh, but also more informative. Um, so keep an eye out for any announcements. Please support my channel, support the transmission, and support the mission. Alright gentlemen, this is General Lance, and this is Lance's Legion, signing off.
running down a way of life Our fighting men have fought and died to keep If you don't love it, leave it Let this song that I'm singing be a warning When you're running down our country horse You're walking on the fighting side of me 